0: Well, The Lone Gunman was a television spinoff of the very popular series, The X-Files. I don't know if anybody watched The X-Files, but uh, The Lone Gunman series aired in 2001 on Fox, and it featured characters from the original X-Files. The whole series revolved around a trio of investigators who had often helped on The X-Files, Special Agent Fox Mulder, if you remember the, the show. But the spin off first aired in March of 2001. That's an important date to remember, March 2001. It ran for 13 episodes. And in the very first episode, titled Pilot, terrorists hijack a commercial airliner and attempt to fly the plane into one of the World Trade Center towers. And this was just six months before the terrorist attacks of 9 11. In the aftermath of 9 11, Several government leaders, including the president, national security advisor, secretary of state, they all repeated the refrain, quote, no one could have ever predicted that terrorists would hijack commercial airliners and fly them into the World Trade Center. Well, apparently, Bush and Rice and Powell did not watch much television because the creators of The Lone Gunman certainly predicted it. And this is by no means the only Hollywood prediction of this type. It's actually fairly common. Something shows up in a script or on screen and then later occurs in real life. The Simpsons TV show is famous for this. Uh, Storylines with bizarre plots and twists that become reality years later. In fact, a 1997 episode of The Simpsons also predicted the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And then there was a 1993 episode of The Simpsons that predicted Siegfried and Roy's Tiger attack that came true 10 years later. Also in 1993, they predicted the pandemic and the murder hornets. Anybody remember the famous murder hornets of 2020? That was also predicted in the same episode. 1995, this was interesting. 1995, an episode of The Simpsons was set in London, and it showed uh, the London skyline. And in the skyline was the shard skyscraper that was not built until 17 years later in 2012 but it was in this 1995 episode of The Simpsons. In 2001, they predicted the Donald Trump presidency. 2008, they predicted Richard Branson's trip to space that came true in 2021. In 2010, The Simpsons predicted the Nobel Prize winner that came true in 2016 by name. In 2012, they predicted Lady Gaga's infamous Super Bowl halftime show from 2017 even down to the clothes that she was wearing and how she came down out of you know, the air and landed right in the middle there. But it's not just Hollywood that has made strangely accurate predictions. The publishing world contains some similar prognostications. For example, Aldous Huxley's groundbreaking 1931 novel, Brave New World. Uh, it talks about how the London government uh, at that time was going to uh, use a drug called Soma S-O-M-A, to, quote, in Huxley's words, raise a quite impenetrable wall between the actual universe and their minds, end quote. In other words, it made them content, unburdened by sadness or anger. Again, to quote Huxley from the novel, eyes shone, cheeks were flushed, the inner light of universal benevolence broke out on every face in happy, friendly smiles, end quote. Now, if that sounds a lot like modern antidepressants and psychotropic drugs, you're not the only one to notice. The Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons noted in 2016 that Huxley's novel, quote, set the stage for our love affair with mind-altering pharmaceuticals. And then my favorite, one more, just months before the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, Martin Keating, whose resume includes working for several government agencies, completed a novel entitled The Final Jihad, about terrorism on American soil. And by the way, Martin Keating's brother is Frank Keating, who was governor of Oklahoma at the time. But again, this was several months before the terrible bombing of the Mora Federal Building in 1995. And according to the plot of Martin Keating's book, domestic terrorists blow up a federal building in Oklahoma City. And the terrorist, the main character, is named Tom McVeigh and it gets even eerier. Like the real Tim McVeigh, one of the terror suspects in the book is apprehended during a routine traffic stop by an Oklahoma State trooper for having a broken taillight. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And that's also what happened in real life when the trooper in the book and in real life doesn't immediately realize the significance of the traffic stop. Now, some people might call these predictions coincidences. Maybe. Maybe. But when it comes to Daniel's stunning prophecy about Israel, some five to six hundred years before Christ, it goes way beyond mere coincidence. I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. You know, in recent weeks, we've been looking at key biblical teaching about God's chosen nation, Israel. And this morning, we come to perhaps the most stunning prophecy, not just about Israel, but about anything in the entire Bible. And I want to set the stage by reading the first few verses leading up to the key passage. We're going to look at Daniel 9, 24 to 27, but let's pick it up at verse 20. So here's Daniel uh, to set the, the context. He's praying, as he often did in his book, and he's seeking the Lord's direction for the nation of Israel. What's going to happen next for your chosen nation is essentially what he's asking in his prayer. He was aware of Jeremiah's prophecy, and he knew that Jeremiah had prophesied 70 years of captivity for the people of Israel, and that 70 years was coming to an end. So essentially, Daniel's beautiful prayer at the beginning of chapter 9 is asking the question God, what comes next for your people? What's next on your prophetic calendar? And so we pick it up in verse 20. Remember, this was 500 years or so before Christ. And and we read, now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, so I find it interesting that God most often speaks to us when we're praying. If you're having trouble really hearing the Lord's direction, seeing His His hand of uh, direction in your life, hearing His still, small voice, how's your prayer life? That's the question. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, Mount Zion, Israel, Jerusalem, he's praying for the people. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, he emphasizes it twice, in the midst of prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly. In other words, God could not wait to answer Daniel's prayer. And he sent Gabriel to do it. Gabriel's not omniscient or omnipresent like God is, so he had to get there. But he got there as quickly as he could. He reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, "Oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. And then he says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. In other words, do you realize that God doesn't even wait till we finish our prayers to begin answering them? Isn't that cool? I mean, God knows our prayers before we even say them. We command, we're commanded to pray. We pray, and prayer makes a huge difference as we see time and again in God's Word. But here's God hearing the prayer, and at the very beginning, God sends out someone to, to come with an answer. And, and Gabriel says, I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And then arguably one of the most famous prophecies, in the Bible, the key to understanding Bible prophecy takes place over the next four verses. So let me uh, step back and give you the big picture in Daniel. As I said, the historical setting 605 to 536 BC. Twelve chapters in Daniel. The first chapter is about Daniel's personal integrity. And then chapters two through seven is all about God's program for the world, uh, the times of the Gentiles, as it's called. And then he concludes by talking about God's program for Israel and the future coming kingdom. Chapters 2 and 7, which I'm going to mention in just a second, uh, are key to understanding the big picture. Chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's famous dream of the statue, and it gives us world history from man's point of view in stunning accuracy. And then chapter 7 is Daniel's vision of the beast, which kind of reiterates what God had already revealed through Nebuchadnezzar's statue, but it's giving us world history from God's point of view. We don't have time to walk through my entire chart, but it's in the chart book out on the resource table in the lobby. Uh, but the theme of Daniel is the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Again, it was at a low point in Israel's history. Uh, Jerusalem had been ransacked. The people were in bondage. The, the captivity had, had just been a blight for seven decades And God, in this time, for such a time as this, raises up the prophet Daniel to remind them that he has a plan that is in perfect harmony with what he said 2,000 years before Christ to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12. In fact, it's in perfect harmony with what God said to the serpent in the garden 6,000 years ago, from our perspective, in Genesis 3.15. And he lays it out in painstaking detail (coughs) exactly what's going on. Uh, to happen, uh, so you can pick up that chart, uh, you know, and kind of work your way through the book of Daniel. But I want to focus in before we get to the key passage on the dream and the vision that I mentioned a moment ago, because they really set the stage uh, for the very specific prophecy that Daniel gives in Daniel chapter nine. So if you remember the story, Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a dream of a statue. And as God reveals the interpretation to Daniel, he explains that this is going to talk about and explain world history. Uh, And and this is one of the reasons why Daniel, the, the book of the Bible, is so disputed by liberal scholars who can't possibly believe that God's word could be this accurate hundreds of years in advance. And as we go through the passage this morning, we're going to see just how accurate It was. But in Daniel 2, we learn that this statue, the head of gold, represents the Babylonian Empire that Daniel was uh, living in at the time. But he says what's going to come next is the Medo-Persian Empire, represented by the silver. And then uh, Greece, the bronze, uh, is going to be the next world empire. And then you're going to see, symbolized by the legs of iron, the Roman Empire, which was split uh, as the statue indicates, into a western and eastern half with Rome and Constantinople. And then Daniel says, referring to the feat, that there's going to come a future revival of the Roman Empire, not a fifth empire, but a restatement of the fourth empire, a revival of the uh, the fourth empire in the end times that's going to encompass the Antichrist and all of the things that Daniel goes on to explain in chapter eleven, now this revived Roman Empire, like the original Roman Empire, is going to have five eastern nations and five western nations. It's uh, maybe interesting to speculate as we look at the signs of the times, and scholars and Bible students have done this for for years, for centuries. We might speculate who those would be. If, if the Lord were to come back in our day, we could think of five Eastern European nations that might be candidates for this revived Roman Empire, certainly five Western uh, European nations that might uh, be candidates. But the point is it's going to be a satanically led one world system centered out of a revival of the Roman Empire. Then in Daniel 7, Daniel has a bizarre vision that reiterates the same world history. We call it world history because from our perspective, it is historical. From Daniel's perspective, it was hundreds of years uh, in advance. And so we see, you know, the Babylonian Empire by the first vision, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, and then, of course, uh, the Roman Empire. And if you put these two passages side by side, they track perfectly together just as God's Word explains them, and we see an end times revival of that future Roman Empire that will lead up to the Antichrist and ultimately the coming of the true Christ, the King of Kings and fulfillment of all uh, prophecy. So Daniel in his prayer is essentially asking the same question that was on the heart of all of the people of Israel at that time. After 70 years of captivity, can God be trusted? And this is the same question that we might ask 2,000 years later. Uh, 2,500 years later from Daniel's day, can God be trusted? So if we look at a panoramic view of history, we've talked about this a lot over the last two or three weeks, uh, Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9 that we're looking at this morning basically takes up this little piece right here that transitions us from the present age into the final kingdom Age. I'll explain how in just a moment, but we're living here in the last days, what the Bible calls repeatedly the last days. It's the last days because it's the final age before the kingdom. The only age to come is the kingdom. But Daniel's prophecy is crucial because it explains how we get from point A to point B. How do we get from this present age where Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, where the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. It's a kingdom of darkness. Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. In heaven, waiting to come back and take the rightful throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. How do we get there? And God's word tells us in great detail here in this passage, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. It's called the 70th week of Daniel. Jesus also refers to this passage quoting Daniel by name and explaining what's going to happen in the seven years leading up to his triumphant return when he splits the eastern sky and comes back on the Mount of Olives and takes the long-awaited throne and rules the world in perfect peace and righteousness and justice with a rod of iron. And so the question that we're asking after 2,000 years of waiting for this kingdom is, can God be trusted? And what we're going to find out is it's an emphatic yes as we look at Daniel's 490 year prophecy. It really is the key to understanding the end times. In fact, one of the best commentaries ever written on Daniel by John Walvoord, who was a professor of mine, it's titled Daniel: The Key to Understanding Bible Prophecy. And it really is. In fact, you cannot properly connect the dots of God's end times plan that 16% of the Bible that has not been fulfilled. So if you're interested in studying the whole Bible, it starts with Daniel. It, under, it starts with Daniel's 490-year plan. So if we look at uh, a big picture of the end times, we're talking about this period of time right here, the 70th week of Daniel. It's variously referred to in Scripture as the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's also called the overflowing scourge, the day of the Lord's wrath, the great day of the Lord, many other references throughout the Old and New Testament alike that refer to this key seven-year period of time that brings us up to, as you see on the screen there, the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming. And then we enter the long-awaited Messianic Kingdom, the first thousand years of which are on the old earth. And I'm going to be talking about that in the next over the next two weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the millennial phase of the kingdom and what life will be like when Christ finally comes back in fulfillment of all uh, prophecy. But we're zeroing in right here on this seven-year period that immediately precedes the return of Christ to establish the kingdom and it all comes from Daniel 9:24 to 27. So let's dive in. Daniel 9:24 reads, "70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now the key is this word right here, weeks. Now remember, the Bible was not written in English. Uh, English came along centuries later. uh, In fact, 2,000 years after Daniel wrote. And it was uh, written, this portion of Daniel was written in Hebrew. So the word weeks is the word Shabuah in Hebrew. It's used 20 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and it means seven consecutive days or years, and the context has to determine the meaning. Here, it clearly refers to a seven consecutive years, a week of years is the idea. Some English translations translate Shabuah sevens, plural, and some of them weeks, like the New King James that I'm using, but it's referring to a seven-year period. Daniel was already asking about the 70 years of Jeremiah, and God answers that by saying, well, you want to know what comes next after the 70 years? It's 70 years times seven a 490-year plan, and when we look at the actual specifics of the prophecy, we're going to see that it's fulfilled exactly to the day. We see the, the word used this way throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis chapter 29, you remember the story of, of Jacob having to, to work uh, for Rachel? And, uh, and uh, the, the text tells us that Laban made him work for a Shabuah, seven years. And then, of course, uh, Laban pulled the old switcheroo, and he had to work for another Shabuah, Nobody should have to work for two Shabuas that's, that's my general principle in life. Before he finally got Rachel, right? Shabuah, a seven-year period. And so if we go back to the text, a week here is seven years. So 77-year periods is what God has determined. And we're going to explain what the purpose of this is in a moment. But it's pretty simple math. Really, 70 times 7 is 490 years. So what we have here is that God is revealing through Daniel a 490-year plan that will culminate with the ushering in of the kingdom. So 70 weeks are determined. Notice who this prophecy is for. For your people and your holy city. Daniel, the 70 weeks of captivity was for Israel. And the 490-year plan is for Israel. It's always been about Israel. We talked about that last week when we looked at Romans 9 through 11, that through Israel, the apple of God's eye, the chosen nation, the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the entire world will be blessed. And that just as God promised Abraham, the father of Israel, the whole world would be blessed through the holy land, Jerusalem, uh, in uh, the kingdom someday. So that's the party to this uh, a prophecy or this commitment that God is making. Your 70 weeks or 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city. And now notice the purpose for God decreeing this 490 year period. He mentions six things here in verse 24. First of all, to finish the transgression. In other words, this plan, when it's all said and done, will end rebellion against God. Transgression, there is rebellion in Hebrew. To finish means to put an end to. And we will not see an end to abject rebellion against God until the king of kings is sitting on the throne. That's what the Bible means when it talks about him ruling with a rod of iron, as Revelation quotes. So there will be a final end of the millennium attempt to rebel against God when Satan is set free from prison and all the unbelievers are gathered with him at that time. But it'll be over in an instant. With a word, it'll be done. It won't be the kind of rebellion that we have seen throughout human history since the fall of man. Satan conspiring with earthly uh, accomplices as we read about in Psalm 2 and as I've written about in my last three books, trying to take over this world and usher in a one-world system in a great satanic rebellion. We will not see any of that any longer when this plan is complete. That's what God is saying. Secondly, it's going to make an end of sins. It will end human failure to obey God. It just is stunning to me how people think that this 70th week of Daniel could have already been fulfilled. I mean, I don't want to be too uh, snide here, but I mean, have you looked around lately? Do you see any sin? But Daniel says, and God told Daniel through Gabriel here, that when this plan is done, there will be no more sin. Has that happened yet? Absolutely not. Thirdly, it will result in the ultimate and complete reconciliation of mankind. The possibility for reconciliation happened at the great atoning work, substitutionary sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. But we won't see the ultimate fulfillment of that until the times of the Gentiles is over and Christ is sitting on the throne and the whole world knows about him from the least to the greatest, as Jeremiah the prophet predicted. Look at this one, number four. When this 490-year plan is finished and complete, it will inaugurate a new society in which righteousness prevails, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, has this happened yet? I mean, take a look around. In your mind's eye right now, scan the globe. Look at all that everlasting righteousness. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it lovely? Do you think the people over in the Middle East and Israel right now are saying, wow, this is everlasting righteousness. This is great. Of course not. Because the 490-year plan isn't complete yet. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, it will finalize or complete the vision that God has for His plan of the ages. This is it. When the 490-year plan is finished, it's done. The king has come. The kingdom has arrived. The Bible has come full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state with a sinless humanity, and Christ is on the throne. So there's no more vision, no more prophecy. And finally, and this is the key, number six, when this 490-year plan is complete, the most holy will be anointed. The King of kings and Lord of lords will sit on the throne and inaugurate the long-awaited messianic kingdom. Jesus, in that same passage where He refers back to Daniel, this famous prophecy, tells us exactly when He's going to take the throne. He says, When the Son of Man comes in all of His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Now, this was... Three and a half years into his earthly ministry, 37 years after he had come in Bethlehem that first Christmas morning. So he wasn't talking about his first advent. He's saying, when he comes, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And when he was on the Mount of Ascension, the disciples wanted to know if he was finally going to inaugurate the kingdom. He said, Nope, not yet. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. I'm going to go away. Like he told him in Luke 19, I'm going to receive the kingdom. Then I'll come back after a long time. And when I come back, then I'll inaugurate the kingdom. In the meantime, go back to Jerusalem and get busy. You've got a job to do. Now, in the progress of Revelation and the progress of human history timeline, humanly speaking, I'm certain the disciples had no inkling that this delay was going to be 2,000 years. In fact, we see again and again in the early church days, both in the biblical record of Acts and in subsequent uh, extra-biblical literature, that there was this expectancy that any second he was going to come back with the keys to the kingdom and, and, and throw off the shackles of Rome and usher in the kingdom. But God had other plans, and Daniel's 490-year plan explains that perfectly. So if we get back to our text, Daniel has explained who the recipients of the prophecy were, Israel, and the purpose of the prophecy, to, to complete God's plan of the ages and usher in the kingdom. Now we we begin to see the timeline. How is this going to happen? So we look at verse 25, and Daniel writes, Now know, therefore, and understand that from, and I've highlighted the time words here in red, from, this is the beginning of the 490-year plan, the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, notice that's capitalized as it should be because it's talking about Jesus, Till he comes back as the Messiah to take the throne. Until that time, when Messiah comes, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So the first a pl- a part of God's plan, as we shall see, is a 483-year plan. Uh, and, and let me just mention before I show you how we get there, that a year in the Hebrew calendar is 360 years, not 364 and a quarter I mean 360 days, not 364 and a quarter days like we have today on our calendar. In the Hebrew calendar, it was 360 days. That'll be important in just a moment. So from the restore to command uh, to, to uh, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. So we'll just call this from A to B. There will be seven seven-year periods plus sixty-two seven-year periods. So 69 seven-year periods. So let's do a little math. You didn't think you're going to do math this morning at church, but you got seven times seven is 49 years. 62 times seven is 434 years. You add those together, you get 483 years. In other words, from A to B equals 69 seven-year periods or 483 years. So the first 483 of this 490-year plan starts with the decree to let Jerusalem be rebuilt all the way up until the Messiah comes. 483 years. And we'll chart this out in a moment. But then the next time word that we see in this prophecy is in verse 26. He says, after this, after Messiah the Prince has come, there shall be... uh, The Messiah shall be cut off. We'll call this C. am going to use the letters in a moment to chart this out. So after the 483 years, some things are going to happen. Number one, Messiah will be cut off. Number two, uh, the prince who is to come. Notice that's not capitalized. That's talking about the Antichrist that Daniel goes on to explain in chapter 11. The prince who is to come is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after the 483rd year, at least a couple of things Daniel tells us will happen. The Messiah will be crucified. He doesn't use the Roman word crucified, but he cut off in Hebrew just means killed. And the future Antichrist is going to come, uh, and, and this was Titus, a type of the Antichrist, foreshadowing the future Antichrist, and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then another time marker Some other things are going to happen after that, after Jerusalem is destroyed, after the Messiah has been crucified. This future uh, Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. This will called D. This week, of course, is a Shabuah, and there we have the final seven years. So we had 483 years from A to B. Some things take place, and then at some point in the future, When this covenant is signed with the Antichrist, that's when the clock starts ticking on the final seven-year period. And notice that seven-year period will take us right up until the consummation, the kingdom, the same thing that Daniel prefaced this whole prophecy about in the beginning when he talked about how the Messiah is going to come, perfect righteousness, everlasting righteousness, and so forth. So uh, that's the text. Now let's just chart it out. You've got A was the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. B was the coming of Messiah. C was the crucifixion of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem. D was the confirmation of a treaty. And E was the consummation of the kingdom. The most holy one will be anointed and inaugurated. As we saw from the text, from A to B was 483 years. And from D to E was 7 years. C, that you see there on the chart, was between those two. Very clear from the text. The first 483 years take place completely. Then there's a pause. And at some point in the future, after Jerusalem has been destroyed, the final seven years will take place. So let's diagram it out with that having you know, kind of explained the text. So using those same letters, we've got from A to B, is 69 weeks of years, or 483 years. What was A? The text tells us from the decree, we know historically that decree from Nehemiah 2 was the decree of the fifth Persian king, Artaxerxes, to allow the Jews to begin rebuilding their temple, which they subsequently did, as we've read about in Nehemiah, which we just finished studying Nehemiah. So we know the starting point for the 483 years. Now remember, a Jewish year is 360 days. So it becomes a a matter of simple math at this point. Uh, 483 times 360, you come up with 173,880 days. Now, if Daniel's prophecy is accurate, then if you start counting March 5th, 444 B.C., which is what we call that date, date today, they didn't call it that back then, but as we now look at the calendar, that's what it was. If we start counting forward from March 5, 444 B.C., 173,880 days, we ought to arrive at the coming of Christ. And guess where we find ourselves? Exactly on the date of the triumphal entry, March 30th, 33 A.D. The very day Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, offered the kingdom, the king is here, a remnant cried, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But within days that the entire nation and the leaders cried, crucify him, crucify him. So exactly as Daniel said, we see uh, 483 years after the decree to the day Messiah the Prince has come. Now, it's important to understand the chronology of Christ's final weeks. So let me take a moment before we finish the 490-year prophecy uh, to mention this. So we know 33 A.D. was the year Christ died. Uh, He arrived at Bethany Saturday, March 28th. The triumphal entry, that which we celebrate in church history on a Sunday, going back to a couple hundred years after Christ, actually, uh, actually took place on a Monday, historically. Uh, on Tuesday, he cursed the fig tree, cleansed the temple. On Wednesday, he gave the famous Olivet Discourse that I quoted earlier, where he talks about when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory. Thursday night was the famous Upper Room Discourse, where he celebrated the Passover meal, instituted the Lord's Supper, washed the disciples' feet for the first time ever in human history, hinted at the rapture in John 14. And then, uh, by later that night in the garden, he was betrayed, arrested, tried. By Friday, he was crucified and laid in the tomb, and he was in the tomb Friday through Sunday, April 3rd through April 5th. Now, it, it sometimes confuses people who, again, forget that the Bible was not written in English, how Christ could have been in the tomb three days and three nights, and yet still fit with both the biblical record and the historical record of a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday resurrection. Well, that's because the Bible wasn't written in English. The phrase three days and three nights in English sounds like 72 hours, right? That's the way we would say it. If we wanted to express 72 hours, we'd say three days, three nights, three full days, right? In Hebrew, and by the way, I've written an article on this. It's available on the free section of our Not By Works online store. Just go to notbyworks.org, click the store button, and in the free section you'll see it there. It's called Three Days and Three Nights. I give several examples of this in the Old Testament. It was a Hebrew idiom uh, that Jesus was using when he said, as the Son of Man, uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Three days and three nights just means any part of any day or any part of any night counts as the whole day. That's what that means. A night and a day. Any part of any day, any part of any night. So he was in the tomb on a Friday, on a Saturday, on a Sunday. It fits. And that's what the, the text means. Remember, the Bible was not written... English. So I encourage you to read that article. This has been the plain teaching of Scripture and the testimony of 2,000 years of church history. Uh, after the Reformation, a lot of people, when the Bible started being written in English and people could start reading the Bible again for themselves without being burned at the stake by the Catholic Church, they began to say, wait a minute, three days and three nights, this must mean he was crucified on a Wednesday or, you know, a Tuesday. And they come up with all these different uh, scenarios. Not necessary. The Bible is true exactly as it states. And then, of course, Resurrection Sunday was April 5th. And then continuing on, for 40 days he appeared to thousands of people through May 14th. On May, uh, sometime during that time he gave the Great Commission, we don't know the exact date, but presumably not long before he ascended on May 14th to the right hand of the throne of God where he is to this day, waiting to return to establish the kingdom. Uh, Ten days later, the church was founded on the day of Pentecost, May 24th, 33 A.D. So, but if we go back to the triumphal entry, this was the ending point of Daniel's first phase of the 490-year prophecy. From the issuing of the decree until Messiah the Prince has come shall be 173,880 days. And it was fulfilled exactly to the day. Going back to our text, we see that after this, after the 483 years, the Bible says, a couple of things are going to happen. First of all, the Messiah would be cut off. Well, guess what? As I just showed you, that is exactly the way it happened. The triumphal entry happened on Monday. He was crucified on Friday, four days later. So just as Daniel prophesied, after the third year happened, the Messiah would be cut off. And several decades later, the temple was destroyed, exactly like Daniel said, after the 483rd year. And then the next time marker was D, then, then the, the uh, final seven-year period would commence with the signing of a uh, peace treaty. Then, the, the Hebrew word there means after the Messiah had been cut off and the temple had been destroyed, sometime after that, it doesn't give us a time, it just says after that, then uh, we would see the final seven years start with the signing of the peace treaty. So what you see on the screen here represents uh, the 490-year plan in its totality. And exactly as Daniel explained in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, there would be a gap of time of unspecified length between the 69th week and the start of the 70th week, between the first 483 years and the final seven years. Then the New Testament comes along. And tells us some additional information about what's going to take place in this gap of time. And that's why, if you remember, last week and the week before, I explained the relationship between Israel and the church. And how Paul explains to us very clearly in Ephesians that the church is a mystery, meaning previously undisclosed information that is now being revealed. Daniel didn't talk about the church. No Old Testament prophet talked about the church. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It was new information that God revealed in the New Testament. But guess what? It fits perfectly within Daniel's 490-year plan. Daniel didn't tell us how long the gap of time would be. He just said there's going to be a gap of time and mentioned a couple of things that happened. The New Testament comes along as God revealed more of his plan and says the church age is going to happen in this gap of time. It is, in that sense, a very real parenthesis, a a gap, a pause, if you will, in the plan. But that final seven-year period is still going to be fulfilled. Let me ask you a question. If the first 483 years were fulfilled precisely to the day, the way Daniel predicted, hundreds of years in advance, don't you think the final seven years will be fulfilled precisely as well, literally. And this is where so many uh, Bible teachers, uh, you know, well-intentioned though they may be, get off track. And they suggest that the seven years was symbolic or metaphorical, or that it all happened in the first century as we talked about a moment ago. Well, that can't possibly be. That would completely destroy Daniel's whole argument. Why would you have part of the 490 year plan be literal and then part of it not be literal. He's told us exactly when uh, this is going to start with the signing of the peace treaty. Now, we don't know when this is going to happen. We still don't know to this day. We can look at the signs of the times all around us. We can understand how things are going to unfold according to the 16% of the Bible that is unfulfilled prophecy. For example, we know that another mystery unmentioned in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New Testament, is the rapture. Since the Old Testament never mentioned the church, of course it doesn't mention the rapture of the church. But the New Testament sure does and calls it a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15, something previously undisclosed. If you look up mysterion in a Greek uh, or other, you know, not just biblical Greek, but ancient Greek literature, both, the word mysterion means newly revealed information. And we talked about that word last week. Uh, So you know the church, like the rapture, both are called a mystery. If you want to put the rapture in Daniel's chart here, it would be probably that right-hand parenthesis there. That's when the church age ends. Sometime after that, the Antichrist is going to rise to fame, and he's going to sign the treaty that starts the clock ticking, exactly like Daniel 9.27 says it will, on that final seven-year period. But we don't know when that's going to happen. All we know is that It's one prophecy, 490 years, of which the first 483 years have already been fulfilled. And it is for this reason that Daniel's prophecy about Israel is so stunning. Because think about all that happened from 500 years before Christ through today. Let's just say through 1948. For centuries, for 2,000 years almost, 1,800 years, there was no Israel on the map. The Romans had destroyed Israel, the Jews had fled, it was an Arab you know, region, there was no Jerusalem. In 1948, all of a sudden, modern Israel reemerges, just as God's word predicted. There's got to be an Israel on the map for Christ to come back and to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. There's got to be an Israel on the map for the Ezekiel's temple to be built. There's got to be an Israel on the map for the Antichrist to set up the abomination of desolation. And so that's why so many prophecy experts are excited about what's happening before us. I mean, there's a lot going on. You've got the red heifers. You've got the, the Gog and Magog stage setting. You've got the, you know, all of the other potential wars that are post-rapture, pre-tribulational. You've got all kinds of things jumping off the page in Scripture. But we will know for sure that the end times have begun once the rapture happens and the Antichrist emerges and confirms this covenant Amen. with Israel. So maybe the creators and writers of The Simpsons are just incredibly lucky. Maybe Martin Keating writing about a domestic terrorist named McVeigh who would blow up a federal building in Oklahoma City and be captured when his accomplice is pulled over for having a broken taillight and all of this several months before the Murrah Federal Building explosion. Maybe it's just a bizarre uh, coincidence. Perhaps it's true that the only people on the planet who could have foreseen terrorists blowing up three of the World Trade Center high-rise buildings by flying commercial jets into two of them were writers, creators, and actors involved in the TV show The Lone Gunman and, of course, the millions of people who watched the episode on Fox six months before the events of September eleventh, two 2001. But one thing that is most definitely not a coincidence is God's prophetic word through Daniel. And after 2,000 years of waiting we might wonder, can God be trusted? And the answer is an emphatic yes. And the takeaway that I want to leave with you is not just the amazing nature of God's prophetic plan, the fact that He's got a kingdom coming someday, the the fact that Christ is going to come back and make all things new, and the Bible is going to come full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state. All of that's amazing. But in our daily walk with the Lord, As we await his return, as seven times the New Testament says we should eagerly wait for his return. As we do that, Daniel's prophecy should remind us that we serve a covenant-keeping God whose word is faithful, who can be trusted. His mercies never fail. That means, first of all, that his promise of eternal life to you is steadfast. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation as the only one who can forgive your sins and give you the gift of eternal life, Instantly you were transformed from death to life, name written in the Lamb's book of life, born again, regenerated, reconciled to a holy God, declared righteous before a holy God, positionally sanctified before a holy God. 33 things happen instantly the moment faith meets the gospel, according to the New Testament. And nothing can change that. Nothing. And if you are going through your life worried and waiting and wondering, what if I did this? What if I step out of line? What if I you know, somehow cause God not to love me anymore. You need to be reminded that God is a faithful God. And he said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And he meant it. But if you don't know the Lord, you also need to understand that God's justice never fails. And justice demands a payment for sin. Now, God's trying to make it so you don't have to pay that penalty yourself. He sent someone to pay it on your behalf. His son, Jesus, shed his blood for you and for me. But he's not going to force that payment down your throat. You have to receive it. It's a gift and a gift must be freely offered and freely received. So if you've not received that free gift, then absolutely God's justice will prevail just as he warned it would. And The day thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. But nobody has to pay that penalty because it's already been paid. And so I, I hope that you have accepted that payment. Uh, that christ made on your behalf let's pray father thank you so much for this incredible prophecy and just uh, how just amazing your word is different language different era thousands of years ago and yet your word is so perfectly true and lord our hope is is in the one who's going to return and make all things new and so lord uh, we know that hope that is seen is not hope but hope that is not seen we eagerly wait for it with perseverance and so lord help us to persevere in these troubling times, not because we have to or we're going to hell, but because we want to make a difference in what time we have left. We want to to sound the alarm, to spread the good news, to be a light in this perverse generation. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.